Welcome to the Relationship as Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Shelby Lee, outdoor adventure enthusiast, dog mom to Luna, world traveler, longtime meditator, espresso lover, and a trained somatic psychotherapist, trauma specialist, and certified coach. Talking about trauma doesn't have to be so daunting. From a connected place, we can navigate anything together. Looking forward to exploring with you today. Here we go. We have a very special episode for you today. I am sitting with a new friend, I hope, and colleague in the relational mindfulness and trauma-informed world among, it sounds like we have many other things we share in common. So I'm really excited for this conversation and to introduce you all to Selena. Selena Lachelle Coyasso is a certified yoga teacher, mindfulness educator, and psychotherapist offering mindfulness-based and solutions-focused interventions rooted in brief therapy, narrative therapy, and liberation psychology. Selena is also a partner at Whole School Mindfulness, a nonprofit organization working at the intersection of education, justice, and mindfulness, where she stewards mindfulness director outreach, recruitment, and selection. Welcome, Selena. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here in conversation with you. Yeah, even just reading your bio, I'm going, oh, there's even more that we have in common. I'm excited to explore. (laughs) And um, many people on the podcast know that I used to teach and work for Inward Bound Mindfulness Education and um, Enrique Coyasso, your husband. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We talked about that in a previous episode. So I'm just excited to know that you also work for them and that we get to talk about that a bit too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What would you like to say about yourself in terms of introductions? Where are you? How are you? Anything at all? Oh, I guess what feels really alive is how it still feels Uh, all the little butterflies and fun of being introduced uh, with this new to me last name, Goyasu, Um, still a newlywed, rounding out the first month of marriage. Um, And it's always so sweet to hear um, Inward Bound Mindfulness Education be referenced because that's where I met my partner and um, realizing that I can't even tell the story of the work that I do uh, at Whole School Mindfulness without referencing that story because it's the first time I saw him how I found out about that. And it's just so sweet how all of these things, um, I arrive at a place in my life where all of the pieces actually feel like they fit together rather than feeling like disparate pieces of um, my personality and passions. They they all finally have come together in a way that feels really sweet. So yeah, that's what's here right now. I love that. All the pieces fitting together. I just felt my body settle hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, tell me a little bit about what inspires you to do the work you do or what brought you to the work you do yeah I think that um thank you for that question I think it starts with that sort of sense of the disparate pieces of the puzzle um when I was a kid I knew I wanted to be 
some form of a therapist. I didn't really know the language around it. Um, I actually had spent a lot of time in my childhood visiting my grandfather um, in different California prisons. He had been incarcerated for decades. And um, watching him was such an important sense for me about how I decide, like started to understand what I thought of as the human condition and what human nature is. So as a kid with that, like watching my grandfather to me, I very quickly was instilled with this idea that um, human nature is basically good. You know, they ask you this question when you're sending to be a therapist or a psychologist. And I figured by watching my grandfather, I realized that we all make mistakes in life and we get to make choices about how we want to show up. And so when I was a kid, that was the thing I wanted to help people do is to, to support people as they were choosing into their ideal selves. And so early, I knew that had to do something with psychology. I also was always obsessed with school um, of the generations and generations in this country. I'm the first in my family to attend university and graduate from college. And my great grandmother who had migrated from, from Louisiana to California um, after she got married as a teenager in the hopes that she'd be able to like finish her education and go to school never had a chance to. And so when I was really little, she would tell me, get your education. Um, and so it was pretty easy that I'd be obsessed with school. I'd play school with my little sister um, and sit her amongst all of our stuffed animals and things and, and pretend to be a teacher. And so that piece was in me too. So I imagined maybe something like, maybe I'll be like a therapist and a writer and be a professor or something of these things because um, writing had also called to me. So I, I kind of grew up feeling like all of these different things I liked were separate. When I was an undergrad, I studied psychology and wanted to double major in philosophy. What I was most interested in was philosophy of religion. Um, and my professor told me I couldn't just study philosophy of religion. I'd also have to learn about like Plato and Socrates. And I was like, I really don't want to study that kind of history. That's okay. I'll just uh, double major in dance. And so I did. Wow. Um, <laughs> and so I took dance for the first time. And, and um, when I was rounding out my undergraduate experience, I remember going to visit two campuses that I was really interested in becoming a therapist and doing that training. One was the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. It's one That's of my first trips. Yes. Well, <laughs> As soon as I walked into that building, I think that was the first time I ever saw a designated meditation space. And I was like, this is where I want to go to school. Um, and then there's also a union-based school down near Santa Barbara that I had an eye on. I think it's Pacifica, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But what surprised me was that most of the students were empty nesters or second career folks. And I was younger than most soon-to-be graduates. I think I was barely 20, maybe 21. And it dawned on me that I wouldn't want to listen to a 21 year old therapist. So I probably shouldn't be one. Um, and so I decided to use that double major piece dance actually. And I was like, well, let me just go explore my intellectual curiosities while I finish growing up a little bit. Um, and so I ended up studying, uh, theater arts and performance studies, uh, at Brown university. Um, because it was the only school aside from my under my alma mater, UC Riverside, um, 
whose dance department had accepted me to their doctoral program. And I thought I'd want to come back and be a professor there. So I knew I couldn't do my PhD there. So I went to Brown. And that eventually led me to live abroad. I was doing research on the history of Africans in Mexico, in particular, how Mexicans learn about that history through performative means, festivals and things like that. It was a really sweet time to be in Mexico because it was a, it was the bicentennial and it was interesting to watch um, as the history books were being updated and this third route, as it's called, um, was being written back into the history books. And as a means of supporting myself and my former partner, the time I started working as a school teacher. It was one of the only jobs I could get um, as a foreigner in Mexico City. And so very quickly, I found myself teaching. I started by teaching sixth grade. And what shocked me was I loved it. I loved teaching even more than I imagined that I would love school. Um, I had been training myself, however, to be a university professor. And so there was this whole ego thing that I had to deal with about and not just be a professor, but I was being trained to be an Ivy League professor. And then here I was teaching elementary school. But I couldn't deny how powerful it felt to be sitting with people who were at this important moment in their lives when they still had hope <laughs> and were starting to decide who they wanted to be in the world. And just talking about it, I can feel the goosebumps that I just love that made me love that work so much and so I ended up living in Mexico City for about seven years and for six years um, six academic years I worked in schools in international schools um, in total I spent some time on at least five campuses working with kids in elementary middle and high school um, eventually doing too many preps is kind of why I retired from teaching <laughs> but um, there was something about the teaching that really remained with me. And the thing that I, during that time, actually, um, I found out there was a, camp, a campus, a Mexico City campus of a California school. So the California, um, the, the California School of Professional Psychology um, has, is housed at Alliant International University. And Alliant had a Mexico City campus. So I decided to start training as a therapist while I lived abroad. And so I was working as a school teacher and a therapist um, in Mexico City. And noticing when I did those two things side by side, that what I loved about them both was actually the same thing. And that was these moments of self-recognition, um, that aha moment when a client or a student realized they could do something they didn't think they could do, or they had access to something that they didn't think that they had access to. Um, and that piece stayed with me. And eventually I chose to move back to the States because while I was doing this other stuff, I also got a master's in international education while I was there through uh, Endicott College. They also had a Mexico City campus. So I was doing those things while I was there all the while kind of secretly because I had withdrawn from my doctoral program in theater arts and performance studies. I had a pretty big case of a very tragic mix <laughs> of imposter syndrome and writer's mm -hmm. block and sort of quite a bit of ethical questioning around doing, for me, ethnographic research methods, in particular around things that have to do with identity um, at a time when 
anthropologists and other non-Mexican people were going to Mexico and finding these communities um, and in essence, kind of asking questions about their identities in ways that as a mixed race person um, just didn't quite rub me the right way. So I needed some time away from that work. Um, but it was while I was developing a dance department for a high school that I was working at in Mexico City that I realized it might be helpful actually for me to answer some of these intellectual or academic questions I have around what it means to teach dance. Um, in particular, I was teaching the Horton Technique, which is most closely associated with the Alvin Ailey School um, as a black woman from the United States to students from all over the world in an international school in Mexico City um, through in accordance with the International Baccalaureate's dance program and thinking, what does this mean? And, and what is what does it mean to be teaching these things in these ways? Um, so that felt pretty performance studies-y. So I went back uh, to Brown um, and did my research. However, I had long since kind of outrun my funding. And so my advisor, who in the long time that it had taken for me to get to that point, had become the chair of the department. Um, incredible, amazing scholar. Um, her name is Dr. Patricia Ibarra. Um, and she had a really helpful idea. And she said that she would help me with my work in that. Um, she encouraged me to consider working as an independent scholar so that I can kind of avoid having to re-enroll and perhaps pay uh, some pretty hefty graduate fees. Um, and as I finished chapters, she would review them. And I will name like technically without getting paid for it because I wasn't going to be enrolled. And that sounded like a good plan to me. So I actually moved to New York so that I could be close to the Ailey School, um, which was a dream to take Horton classes at the Ailey School was just beyond what I would have imagined. Um, and I worked part-time um, to try to make a little bit of money while spending half of my time doing doctoral research. And the job that I ended up finding was a job that allowed me to use my work in international schools in Latin America um, through the... Um, National Student Leadership Conference that does short-term career-oriented leadership workshops for high school students. And I got to have two roles with them. One was going back to Mexico and other places in Latin America to do outreach and recruitment. And the other, which was really important in this story, was to serve as a leadership facilitator. And I'm not sure if when you got to interview Andrew Gaith, you got to talk a little bit about Challenge Day, um, mm -hmm. but the kind of work that I got to do is like a mini version of how I imagine his work at Challenge Day. I got to spend um, these short periods of time, in my case, about nine days working with high schoolers who were pretty sure where they wanted to head in terms of their careers. But my role was to help them turn inward and make sure that they knew how they were making the decisions they were making. Were they making these choices based on what felt authentic to them? Or did it feel like they were making choices based on what people told them they should be in this world? And that suddenly felt like all the things I loved about being a therapist, all the things I loved about being a teacher, and none of the homework. <laughs> and so it was while I was doing that that I found my own way of doing that work. And what felt like it made the most sense to me as someone who was trained as a therapist and had taught psychology um, in high schools, what I said that I was doing was teaching emotional intelligence. Um, but the way that I was doing it, I was actually borrowing from my own 
practices of mindfulness and figuring out ways to language it for youth. And so I got to do that work in the summertime. And meanwhile, um, I finally got my yoga teaching certification. Um, I trained at Sonic Yoga in New York. I did my 200 hour and 300 hour there. But because I had a wild work schedule, I would travel <laughs> up to, at the time of the pandemic, I had gotten up to six months out of the year of travels. So I would be away in Latin America for two months and then back in New York for two months. And then in the summer, two months, I would be on college campuses with the NSLC. So the way that I would teach yoga was by doing workshops. So I would rent spaces um, and just do a one-off workshop. There was a really great local studio uh, in my little beach town in, in Long Island that was extremely generous. Um, Love Integration Yoga invited me to teach a lunar flow whenever I just happened to be in town, which was extremely generous of them. Um, most folks don't let teachers do that. Um, and on MLK Day of 2020, I was doing a workshop and I saw a bulletin board and that's where I saw the flyer for Inward Bound Mindfulness Education. And on the flyer, it had youth of color meditating. And I got goosebumps and knew that was the next step. I wanted to take all of this stuff that I had discovered about what mattered to me and what I loved to share and just do that. <laughs> and so I decided, I was like, I need to figure out how to be a part of this group, how I can sit with youth of color and share these gifts that have taught me so much and literally saved my life um, and share them with them. And so I got connected with uh, IB Me and little by little, and in some ways by leaps and bounds, my life completely changed. Um, obviously, a little thing called the pandemic happened <laughs> a few months after that. And oh. so my travel, my job where I had been traveling completely stopped just like that. And it was actually supposed to be my last year doing that work. Um, it was just a lot more unceremonious of an ending than I anticipated. I was in Cali, Colombia, um, in the middle of my recruitment season, um, March 15th, 2020, when I had to get on a plane, head back to New York, and that was it. I was done. Um, I continued to do the work for the NSLC, but I had to do it virtually, obviously, like everyone else. Um, but meanwhile, that gave me time. And sitting still, um, being still gave me the time to actually finish writing my dissertation. Um, at that point, I'd been spending five years working on the research. I'd gotten about halfway through and I finished the second half of the entire dissertation in five months <laughs> because of the pandemic. Um, I was able to start to connect with IBME um, around that time that later that fall of the fall of 2020, we had the opportunity to create what was known as the Communities of Color Initiative. Um, and I had the honor of being part of the leadership team there. Um, and I got to see relational mindfulness in action. We started to hold weekly and bi-weekly um, gatherings, intergenerational gatherings. So youth and adults um, who support them. We'd all come together on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And I learned firsthand what it felt like to develop a a community, like a sangha, we might say, um, that was entirely built on relational mindfulness. And it really opened things up for me um, about community building. I think we've all learned that there are ways that even through technology, we can connect. 
but there was something very powerful about that combination of having this incredible interface that we know of a zoom um, and pairing that with relational mindfulness it was exactly what i wanted to do and the first day that i ever met enrique was um, a meeting where we were all people who were interested in IBME and part of IBME were coming together, people of color who might be interested in helping develop this communities of color initiative. We all met in this room. Enrique introduced himself as a mindfulness director at a high school in Oakland um, called MetWest. And I sent him a message in the chat and I was like, dude, you have my dream job. And as he might say in classic Enrique fashion, he literally wrote nothing except the link to Whole School Mindfulness, which was then the Mindfulness Director Initiative. And I was like, okay. So I went to the website and um, signed up to get more information. I, I thought if what I can do is work in schools and just connect people to themselves and to each other, that's the work I want to be doing. And because I had moved back to the States and all of the teaching I had done abroad was, had been abroad, that meant I didn't have a school community of my own. And it also made, um, I'm a little bit of an overachiever, someone might say, <laughs> a high achiever, we'll say. So I thought, how can I make myself the very best applicant possible? And so IBME had a, a year-long teacher training program. They have a teacher training program that they run approximately every two years. And so I decided I'm going to do that. If I get in this teacher training program, that's going to make me a stronger applicant so that I can be a mindfulness director. And hopefully once I get in, they'll help me find a school. <laughs> and that was kind of my plan. But as it turned out, um, in, this, in last, last year in the spring, so in spring of 2021, they were looking for a director of mindfulness director selection. So while I didn't think I was maybe going to be like anyone's top choice for a mindfulness director just yet, I was working on it. I did think that I had all of the skills that would probably allow for me to have a, an openness of mind to be able to cast a wide net and take lots of different factors into consideration to help select the people who get to do that work. Um, and so to my great delight, I was selected to, to take on that role. And that was one month after I had chosen to walk away from the work that I had been doing at the National Student Leadership Conference. And I left and jumped into that void, not knowing how soon or what was going to happen in terms of work. And within a month, that, that position opened up and I applied for it. And two months later, I started um, and loved it. It was a it was originally supposed to be a part-time role, but I loved the work so much that very quickly, and I renegotiated for it to be a full-time role. And um, I realized that what I was most interested in was collaborative leadership and doing the work of helping run the entire org, not just the pillar that I had been assigned to, which is super important, but not a whole thing of doing the work at whole school. But I wanted to be a part of all of it. Um, and in that process, we actually decided to shift the way that we run our org altogether. We no longer have an executive director. Um, uh, Mark Waxman, who had been our executive director, shifted to senior partner, and we're all transitioning to, there's four of us who are partners in the work. Um, and this felt like, to me, collaborative leadership feels a little bit like relational mindfulness in action. Um, 
And so that has allowed me to sort of bring a lot of the work that I do. And simultaneously, I started working as a therapist again, um, went through the process of getting licensed in New York. So still in that process now, getting all of the hours and um, working under some really great folks, serving primarily um, queer communities of color based in New York State. Um, and so I get to do all the things I love right now. <laughs> I spend about 75% of my time doing work at whole school and 25% of the time uh, working with clients of all ages and using these sort of mindfulness-based interventions to help them reconnect to themselves and connect more authentically with the people in their lives. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I just want to take a breath together. Just kind of letting that land. It's so incredible. Are you open to that? Yeah, let's do it. Let's take a big breath. Wow. Yes. That is just, I could sit here and listen to you all day. <laughs> I am so moved by your passion, by all of the various things that you have your hands in, that you're uh, bringing into the world, everything you've navigated and just sitting with you. I'm just smiling. My face hurts <laughs> because it, you know, you talked about all the pieces coming together and I just was flooded with goosebumps after goosebumps as you're talking about all of these things that you brought together for yourself and are bringing together for those you work with. And it's just incredible. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple of things I'd love to ask you about. Um, I want to bookmark the second thing would be, what is relational mindfulness <laughs> to those people who are very curious now, I'm sure. And you said that um, mindfulness and these practices literally saved your life. Yeah. And if you'd be open to sharing a bit about that, that really yeah. struck me. Yeah, absolutely. When I started university, um, for the first time in my memory, I started to have some pretty um, intense bouts of depression and they were coupled with suicidal ideation. And because I studied psychology, I was able to notice as they were happening um, and eventually notice the patterns. And they were happening basically during vacation time. There was something about the not doing that really was challenging for me. Um, it was during my first year of university when I took my first yoga class. Um, and also it was my first year when I first started dancing and there was an entire shift in my learning style. Um, and I became a kinesthetic learner just by being so fully immersed in my body. Um, I think I might've been a visual learner before, maybe an auditory learner, I'm not sure. But after that, it really, there was something about embodiment that started to become my preferred mode of moving throughout life. But the thing that was most important about it was for the first time in my life, I started to learn that I could trust my body as a site of knowledge. And because I had been raised 
to be the educated person in my family, I had pretty much exclusively identified with my intellect since I was three years old. And here I was beginning to have a new relationship to my sense of what I could be in the world um, and what I could trust as a source of knowledge. And that was kind of like planting the seeds or maybe even just tilling the soil. And I didn't realize it until really recently. So thus hindsight that what I had started to do was I'd started to develop my own kind of practice of mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of emotions and mindfulness of thoughts. <laughs> um, but I didn't know, I had no language for it. I didn't have a formal meditation teacher. I'd found a really great formal um, yoga teacher um, at a little studio that may not even exist anymore called Inland Yoga in Riverside, California. Um, and I remember sitting on the mat after an asana flow and we were sitting in meditation and it just dawned on me that I had spent my whole life with my eye towards the future. And if I live my whole life that way, then in theory, I could wake up someday and realize I hadn't been present for the actual living of my life. And that sounded like a recipe for regret. And so I thought I should probably meditate someday, <laughs> but I was too scared to do it then. Um, and yet what I didn't realize was I actually had started doing some mindfulness practices. Um, a couple of years later, when I first went to Brown for the first, first few years, my first round of grad school, um, I was going through some heartache and some really difficult time. And I remember I had my home practice. So I would do this sort of sadhana before uh, like a dedicated personal practice um, that looked like rolling out my mat, doing some of my favorite asanas, yoga poses, and then sitting down until I stopped crying. <laughs> and so I would just sit there and watch the tears, feel them in my belly and my body until my solar plexus felt like a still pond. And when that happened, it was like I could hear the quietest voice say, it's going to be okay. Then I would like journal and that would be my like morning routine. So I had started doing that. Then um, a few years later, when I was living in Mexico City, the cyclical bouts of depression and, and suicidal ideation were still with me. They had found a different kind of pattern of when they would arise, but they were still with me. Um, I had gotten married uh, in 2012 and we had a pretty tough run of it. Um, tragically, there was um, uh, someone in my ex-wife's family disappeared like the week of our marriage and dramatically changed the course of her life um, and all of our lives. And so our marriage was kind of off to a rocky start from a few days before we even really kicked it off. And she was away a lot, um, helping, doing really heroic work with the families of the disappeared. Um, and I was alone a lot. And that was when I really started to double down on my practice. Um, I recommitted to my own asana practice, but really for the first time, I started to consciously and actively train in mindfulness meditation. 
this was uh, around the time Headspace kind of like was still kind of newer, didn't have all of these massive different themes. And I just would do take 10 over and over again and assign it to my students. <laughs> so I would do what to me felt like the formal practice of sitting and doing my 10 minutes of Headspace. And then I coincidentally came across my first Dharma talks um, and I started listening to Gil Fransdahl. Mm-hmm. And that for me felt like an intellectual pursuit or like tapping into that part of me that had wanted to study philosophy and philosophy of religion. And so I was doing the sitting, that was the formal thing. And then I was doing this like intellectual curiosity thing. <laughs> um, but of course, as it happens, and especially with a teacher like Gil, those lessons were doing something. And so because I was in a really tough place with my romantic partnership at the time, those depressive and suicidal bouts started to come more frequently. And because those bouts started to come more frequently while I was actually starting to watch my mind in a more um, kind of formalized and really committed daily way, the ability to watch the patterns suddenly increased. So I'd already learned somewhat of what the patterns kind of were like, but for the first time in my life, I started to notice what happens before the episodes would happen. And I started to be able to keep an eye out on the side, the subtle shifts in my self-talk and my actual thoughts and noticing the shifts in my emotions. And so after a few of those bouts, while actually doing my mindfulness practice, I was able to start to shift something. And for me, it felt like this image of like a really huge thunderstorm on the horizon and being able to see those dark clouds getting ready to roll in. And it felt like I had enough time to take shelter. And that was how it started. And then it started to happen such that I would take shelter and those clouds actually wouldn't come all the way to where I was. Like I could see the beginnings of it and I would shift something in my behavior and my thoughts that would basically ride out that, that sort of potential episode and it, and it wouldn't happen. But first it started by noticing that they got shorter. They were more brief. They were less intense. And when I would think about these sort of suicidal thoughts, there was a quiet voice that also reminded me that it would pass, that if I didn't give in to them, it would pass because it always had passed. And little by little, those bouts got briefer and then they got further and further apart. The immediate response was that um, after about two years of doing that, I realized I didn't want to stay in my marriage and I wasn't happy in my life. The lifestyle I was living was not the lifestyle I had hoped for. (laughs) And I couldn't pretend anymore. I was so used to seeing myself, um, but also showing up for myself every day, no matter how I felt that for the first time in my life off the cushion, I wanted to show up for myself bravely and no matter what it meant. And so my ex-wife and I, we separated and then eventually got divorced. And then I moved back to the States and 
got back to this sort of doing this dissertation journey and all of those things. And I found a therapist um, who had been actually my favorite professor in my therapy program, but enough years had gone by that ethically we could change our relationship. <laughs> and so I, what I was looking for was to make sure that I could have some accompaniment while I learned the lessons um, that maybe were there to learn from what had been actually a seven and a half year relationship and um, a two-year marriage and a completely different life, a whole life I had built that I stepped away from. And, and in that transition, having a therapist while also yet again, doubling down on my um, Dharma talks and extending my sits and really being committed to all of that work. Eventually, I, felt, I, I looked up and it had been years since I'd had a bout of suicidal ideation. And it wasn't until I think a few years in, I was talking to my therapist and I had told her this story about this thundering clouds and thunderstorm. And I was like, so proud of this image. And then she said, well, what if it wasn't like a thunderstorm, which is something that you can't control at all, but more like a street that you can choose to walk down or walk past. And the reason that she wanted to help me shift the image was because I was still so afraid that the locus of control was actually still beyond my reach. And I was terrified that one of these bouts could still happen again. And after a good four or five years had gone by without one, this idea of me being on like a bicycle and choosing which street to, to ride down gave me the courage to say, actually, no, that is the thing I won't choose again. And I had enough practice under my belt and enough years of proving to myself that I could show up for myself in this way that I finally felt confident that the practice will get me through. Um, and it continues to, to this day that, you know, when the going gets tough, <laughs> there are ways that I can hold space for myself. And now I've built up a repertoire of memories of showing up for myself um, that has really um, completely changed my life. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm just struck by, you know, something feels really powerful and strong and steady and secure. Those are my projections. <laughs> I can feel in my own body though, just here and in a sense of strength and what it took to get from the suicidal ideation to this, being able to speak about it in such an integrated way. I know from my own experience of suicidal ideation that it took probably everything and that kind of devotion and that kind of showing up for yourself, it takes something, you know, like it's incredible that you found that in yourself and the support inside, hopefully the support outside and to be able to lean in. And I'm just grateful that you're here today to teach us and to tell us and to be able to hold others through this. Thank you. Yeah. I, I sometimes marvel that just sitting gave me uh, self-love and self-confidence 
in a way that two degrees in psychology couldn't. That this is not, you can't think your way to certain things. You just have to feel your way into them and show up. It's an experiential process. And it, it's laughable to me that I, I couldn't know that from the outside. I had to, I had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. What an incredible story. And the images and the visuals you're giving us, I know there are so many people here that are going to have to borrow those (laughs) (laughs) and it's just brilliant. All the different pieces again. So thank you. Thank you. I know we have such a short time left and I'd love to just briefly define how you see how you define relational mindfulness and how that supports you in your life or supports folks you work with, just so people can have a little sense of what is this beautiful thing that you're mentioning and that we're talking about. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever had the chance to define it. So I'll like preface this by saying this might not be how other people would define it. This is practice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just practice. I think of relational mindfulness as doing the intentional work that we do when we are showing up for ourselves and with ourselves as we train in mindfulness, this present awareness, this non-judgmental present awareness, um, and choosing to take the next step and bring it into the world um, by breathing into it with others. Relational mindfulness is how we make what can be a solitary practice, uh, a practice for social change. Yeah. I think we're going to have to do another podcast at some point about this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah. I'm I'm just tuning in to just see if there's anything I would add. And it really is about, you know, I think the old paradigm was sitting on the cushion by ourselves and it's now we have to do it together. Now we have to find a way to be in community and connection in a vulnerable present, curious, compassionate way to be able to move forward into what we need to do to create a new paradigm world. Yeah. And relational mindfulness is a way to be able to do that. I agree. I think that critics might say, actually, I will say this when I was an undergrad and I was talking to some high school friends about meditation, which was a thing, again, I wasn't quite ready to think I was doing (laughs) or try to do. Um, Someone who hadn't meditated before said, like his image of meditators are like those who go off into caves and do their own thing. And he was like, that's the most selfish thing a person can do because how are they helping anyone? They're just sitting by themselves. And there was something about that that didn't sit well with me. I was like, eventually I'm going to figure out an answer to that question of why it doesn't feel right. And of course I learn about things like meta loving kindness of which Indrika is, I like to call him a meta master. And there are all of these ways that we generate goodness and share them. Even when we're doing the work by ourselves. However, 
I would say even an informed person about mindfulness and even metta practices could argue that it still can run the risk of maybe navel gazing, we might say, this idea of like this sort of thing that you just do yourself. But if what we want to do is make mindfulness a tool for justice, we have to be able to do it with other people. And we have to be able to do it to cultivate change. And I think as anybody listening who has any idea about what it means to cultivate change in others, that's not exactly something we can do very easily. Um, In fact, um, these tools of mindfulness, as we learn by practicing them for ourselves, there's this sense of like, actually, there's a letting go that has to happen in order to cultivate space. And it's in the space where change can happen. With relational mindfulness, you co-create space together to hold space for difference in a way that will allow for change to not feel like it's being pulled or pushed from any particular direction. That's the kind of change that allows for everyone involved to take ownership thereof, as opposed to a sense of someone trying to force something on us. When we practice relational mindfulness, it's a it's basically a playing field or a practice ground for those of us who are committed to doing work of change and who are committed to mindfulness to see what happens when we put those two tools, two tools together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is what we do in my, it's called embodied coaching experience, but now it's called embodied relationship, something or other. We're building the new website. (laughs) I can't remember. (laughs) But that's the foundation is this is how we work with each other as colleagues and with our clients is that we have to be embodied and connected and not have an agenda to really be able to get curious, lean in and not push or pull the change. And so much richness can come from there. Mm -hmm. I find it to be uh, one of, you know, the principles of my values in my practice is nonviolence. And so it really supports that. Yeah. How, what will people find when they find you? How can people connect with you? Are there ways they could learn from you? Um, Well, I hope so. Um, (laughs) I love to be in conversation with people. Um, I don't have a social media manager, which you can tell probably by the number of followers I have on Instagram. So that means that when people reach out to me and send me like questions in my DMs, I'm like, I love being in conversation. And those questions can sometimes be like, how do I find um, like a trauma-informed training? Or like, how do I do this thing? People often do that. Um, On social media, everything is kind of through the same thing. I was able to do this. Pramana wellness is my sort of wellness umbrella through which I teach yoga and teach mindfulness and work with clients and through psychotherapy. Um, So that means on socials, you can find me at Pramana wellness, but also um, pramanawellness.com. And my email is pramanawellness at gmail.com. So contacting me in that way, just to have a conversation is sweet. Um, If folks happen to be New York residents then, and they happen to be looking for a therapist, in particular, a queer therapist of color, hey, send your people to me. I'm happy to chat. Um, 
I also get to run mindfulness-based cognitive therapy groups. Um, so roughly seasonally, I'll have one. And unfortunately, those are still only open to New York-based clients for now. In the future, we'll be able to do them um, with other states too. Um, so those are other ways that people can connect with me. Um, yeah, I think that's what, that's what comes to mind for now. <laughs> and we will put all of those links in the show notes and all of the places so that people can just scroll down and click right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also I'll add, um, if what I was describing about being a mindfulness director feels like the kind of work, that's a dream job for you, the way it felt like for me, um, you know, I love that work that I do at whole school. So you can reach out to me in that way too. And that one's easy. I'm just Selena at wholeschoolmindfulness.org. Um, so yeah. It doesn't matter what, which of the things we talked about today, <laughs> or maybe something we didn't talk about that this part, I'm happy to be in conversation. Beautiful. Well, I'm just really appreciating the content. Yes. But also the felt sense of sitting with you, of receiving you and your story and your wisdom. And I, it's rare for me that I feel like I could sit here with somebody for more than an hour hour, you know, I'm such an outdoor girl. I just want to go run around <laughs> with you. I'm just like, let's just hang out forever. It feels so good. <laughs> so thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much for being here. Thanks so much for listening. Before you go, if you loved the conversation today, make sure you're subscribed and leave a five-star review so we can get the word out to anyone that this might be supportive or inspiring to. Also, if you're a facilitator, coach, healer, or therapist, Creating Safer Space is open for enrollment now. Go check it out at creatingsaferspace.com. If you're a medical provider or healthcare professional, check out creatingsaferhealthcare.com today. Bringing you accessible online trauma awareness and trauma-informed trainings brings me so much joy. Looking forward to connecting with you over there as you join me in this worldwide revolution supporting the folks who need it the most.